the food industry seems to be constantly evolving. What was cool yesterday may be baloney today. So how can we keep up? How do we tell the difference between a fad or a trend? My name is Molly Gallant, and you're listening to Food Focus, the podcast. In this episode of Food Focus, we sat down with Joanne MacArthur, president of Nourish Food Marketing, to discuss some of their predictions for food trends in 2020. We hope you enjoy this episode, and thanks for listening. Well, welcome, Joanne, and thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. So, Joanne, you and I haven't formally met in a COVID world. We meet lots of new people virtually. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, Well, I like to tell people that we know a lot about a little. So we don't know how to sell cars or insurance. We're specialists in uh, food and beverage. And uh, we are a full-service marketing agency with things like test kitchens and chefs and package designers. Everybody who works at Nourish is a food and beverage specialist. And we work across the entire food ecosystem. So producers, processors, manufacturers, uh, food service, retailers, associations, not-for-profits. We we have sort of a, a privileged position of working across the entire food ecosystem. Well, that's cool. And so one of the things that I was introduced to you through a mutual friend uh, and collaborator, Lynn Kahn, is this annual trends report you do where you sort of take a high-level look at how how our interaction with food is changing. How do you come up with this list? Yeah, great great question. Uh, so we've been doing it. It's our fourth year that we've done it. And if, you know, we our, our previous trend reports are all still available and uh, we've done pretty well in prediction. And I think that's because, as I said, we work across the entire food ecosystem. Uh, and because we're specialists, if we see a gap in knowledge, we fill that gap with our own original research. We also have clients who have their research. So what we do is look at all the different things. And I always say we like to, when we talk about a trend, we like to really triangulate. We want to make sure that, you know, we've got three different studies that are pointing to the same thing. Because, you know, sometimes you read studies and you say, huh, that's kind of surprising. Um, and you do get outlier studies like that. So we, we make sure that everything we talk about, we really triangulate. And I guess the other thing I would say is when we talk about trends, we're talking, you know, we're not talking about what's going to be the flavor, the hot flavor next year. We're not interested in that. We don't believe our clients are either. It takes a long time to make changes in the food system uh, and it, to develop new products. So what we try to do is have more of a longer term viewpoint and look at what are those cultural shifts that are going on that are going to be around longer term. Oh, okay. So that, so. You're formalizing a process to a degree that I think those of us at Food Focus who think about similar things do do as well. So I'm intrigued at, the, at that process. So rather than continuing on process, let's talk a little bit about what some highlights are. And I've picked a couple that were of particular interest to me. And, I, and I'll start by saying, give me the overview of what you mean here. So the first one is know me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's the consumer expectation that their food is customized, that their experiences are customized. And as you know, right now, there's a trade-off. We, in a digital world, are giving up a lot of our privacy, whether we know it or not. And with that, I think, comes an expectation that, uh, you know, when when I go uh, and get an offer from my retailer on my phone, 
I expect that they know what kind of products I'm looking for. So don't offer me, you know, a price on steak if I'm a vegan. Uh, so it, it's, it's that sort of idea of taking artificial intelligence and this whole hyper-personalization trend that we've been seeing for a while um, with consumers. Last year's trend report, we talked about the fact that less than half of the world's population now are what you would consider true omnivores. We all have a specialized way of eating, it seems, these days. And so it's, you know, can you bring those two things together? And when I talk about hyper-personalization, it's going even beyond the fact that I'm gluten-free or I'm vegan or something else. Uh, it's, it's even getting down to the DNA level because we've got all of these tests now that are becoming more mainstream, uh, that are coming down in cost. And I think it's also, consumers are always looking for that silver bullet. You know, I would lose that last 10 pounds if only I could find the right way to eat for myself. So I think that's another reason why we're looking for technology to make those kind of recommendations to us and hyper-personalize hyper what we eat. That's interesting because one of the things that, that I think agriculture or sort of the, the start of the food system has been a little bit resistant to in the past is creating more differences at the production level. And I think we're going to see that more and more. And sort of this no me trend becomes, becomes more relevant as we have more choices because I'm not convinced that as individuals, we want more choice. It's just that the food system is giving people more choice because more of us want different things. It's not that I want 50 different kinds of mustard. It's just that you want different mustard than I do. And so this Know Me initiative reduces search cost in a more complex shopping environment. Absolutely. That's a great point. I mean, I'm sure you've seen um, Dr. Barry Schwartz, Paradox of Choice, where he talks about you know, we are actually less happy with more choice. So, you know, one, two choices, we're not terribly happy. Three choices, we're, we're happy. Four, five, that happiness curve flattens. And then more than that, we get overwhelmed. And you see that in grocery stores every day. Um, I used to talk about the cereal aisle being the place where you'd see a consumer walking there, be overwhelmed by the choice, and they actually walk away and don't make a purchase. And I see that happening in yogurt these days as well. And so I think the consumer wants choice, but they want it curated for themselves to make it easier. So exactly. And I think a great example of where this all comes together, and your listeners could look this up online, there's a great video, a company called DNA Nudge. Uh, and it's very futuristic to me. It's very Star Trek. Um, but this is actually happening now. And so what it is, is when... Uh, a consumer has their DNA analyzed, and as they're shopping, it actually nudges them. They, they wear something on their wrist or on their phone, and it nudges them towards better choices within each section for them. So that's pretty crazy. Uh, it's been in, in beta in uh, London uh, in the UK, and it's now uh, coming to the US this year. Wow. Yeah. And so based on... Not necessarily where we are at physiologically today, if we're sort of uh, hypoglycemic or <laughs> or anything like that. But, you know, if we're inclined genetically to obesity, to offering healthier choices or things like that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it even, you know, a lot of us are already wearing smart devices on our wrist. Yeah. Uh, you know, our Fitbits, whatever. And this takes all of that information and says, hey, this is a better choice for you because you didn't get out and exercise as much as you normally do. Or, you know, it nudges you to go get some activity because you've been sitting around for for an hour. And then, you know what, you can have an extra bunch of grapes as a reward. Ah, okay. So that, that's, I wear a, a smartwatch and I despair sometimes at how much it knows about what I do or how little I do. Mm-hmm. That, so it's interesting. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I think it would be an adjustment. I think it would be a little invasive at the start, but that it would be an adjustment. I think it depends on your generation as well. You know, if you look at uh, younger generations like Generation Z, they're digital natives. So they've always grown up with this kind of technology. And so to them, it's almost an expectation. For boomers, it seems invasive. So I think there is generational divide on some of this technology as well. So you've just outed me as as an uncool old person. Hey, I'm a boomer. I was speaking strictly about myself, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I, I want to keep some time for a couple of other of, of these trends because I'm, I'm fascinated by this discussion. What you've talked about in terms of know me, and I think what you're getting at is identifying products that are a good fit for us as individuals. Yes. Is the next step, and as I said, I think agriculture is finally coming around to, and I think food processing has gotten there with much more diversity of choice, and agriculture is coming around to producing products that are of interest to different types of consumers rather than saying, this is how we produce it, and if someone else produces it differently, uh, we find that a threat. And I mean, it's simple things like, a2 milk or higher protein products or lower protein products or, or more of this characteristic. Nomi is about finding the right product. It's not about creating the right products, is it? Um, yeah, I would say that's right. It's curating the right product. Absolutely. Although, you know, of course, we've seen this taken to its extreme right now in Silicon Valley, of course, where, you know, you have protein bars that and smoothies that are being made specifically for people um, based on their DNA. So what sort of uh, uh, pre and probiotics should they be having? What supplements should they be having? And, you know, in Silicon Valley, it's all about not spending time preparing food or even eating food. They want to be, you know, working all the time. Uh, and so you see that trend being taken to its absolute extreme and most personalized. Yeah. But that I don't think would be a mainstream trend. Yeah. And so those things, I, th- I think those things to a degree go hand in hand as product developers come up with more and varied ideas and producers provide more and varied inputs. The need for this curation to reduce search cost and reduce the complexity of the purchase decision becomes more important. And I forget the author, but I read a book recently called The Long Tail, which says we're going we're going to be buying less of more things. So this know me curation really does fit well as we have more and more product choice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the next one I wanted to talk about is unpackage me. So what what are you talking about with that one? Mm. Well, that's, you know, if you, if you think about the term single-use plastic, 
that wasn't part of the consumer lexicon two years ago. And now you read about it all the time. And, you know, we see it being banned. Um, we see um, disposable straws, um, plastic bags. I will say um, I think this trend has taken a bit of a step back in a COVID environment. But I think once we come out of this, uh, we will collectively put our energy towards this again because, you know, cleaning up the environment's a big part of all of us, you know, living on this planet together. And I think that there's a recognition that, you know, consumers want to do the right thing, but doing the right thing is really hard. If you look at recycling programs, each municipality is slightly different. This coffee cup's recyclable, this one isn't. Uh, you know, it's you almost need a PhD to get it right. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so, you know, of course, consumers are looking at manufacturers and producers to help them. Uh, and they're putting the onus back on industry. And you're also seeing governments starting to outlaw things. Um, Vancouver's outlawed foam in youth, in takeout. And so I think you're going to start to see us move towards less packaging going forward. You had chains starting to accept and encourage you to bring your own coffee cup. Those programs, of course, have been put on hold right now because they don't want to put their frontline workers at risk and they don't have the proper protocols in place right now to handle those programs. But even a grocer like Metro had been encouraging people to bring their own containers to put food in. And if you think about that a year ago, uh, you would have thought that was unfathomable because of food safety concerns. But this is becoming so important to consumers that they're, uh, and retailers that they're willing to, to go there. And we are seeing systems like the loop system uh, that's been in test in the U.S., uh, which is to me, very similar to, I, I uh, spent a big part of my career in the beer industry, and we had something called the industry standard bottle. And if you think about it, that was in some ways uh, similar to the old milk bottles, recycling at its best. You would use the bottle, you would return it, it would get washed and reused about 15 times and just relabeled with whoever the manufacturer was. It's interesting, and, and I agree with you considerably that people are looking to that. And, and I think you cite a study that says a large majority of Canadians say they're ready for it. Is it important enough to Canadians that they'll pay more for it or that they'll work a little harder at, at recycling? I think they'll work harder at it if they know how to do it. Will they pay a premium? Consumers always say they will. Yeah. But, you know, stated and actual behavior, there's always that gap. And we've seen that with greener products. Uh, so, you know, I, I wouldn't trust that per se. But, you know, anything that, you know, you can do to make it a little easier for the consumer, they will give you marks for that. So, you know, there had been a lot of pickup on the bring your own cup. Uh, and in return, you know, chains like Starbucks were giving you a discount for doing that. So I think that that helps encourage that behavior. Of course, as a marketer, how do you tell your product story if you look down the road to a possible future where there's no packaging? We already have grocery stores unboxed as an example where there is no packaging. It's all bulk. 
So how do you tell your story uh, in that environment? And uh, one of the companies I think that's doing something interesting is Nature Knows. So they're a produce, branded produce company, and they found a, uh, they've developed a corn-based bag that's 100% compostable. It also has the added value of extending shelf life by 50%. So that's kind of win-win, and it allows them to tell the story of where those apple slices or where those grapes came from. So I think it's those sort of innovative solutions uh, that industry needs to work on. And it relates back to a little bit to the to the NOMI if it becomes more critical to help people make the choices for the products they want if there's less information available at the point of sale. Yeah, exactly. So one other point that you just made about compostability that I think complicates this issue, and that relates to the fact that we hear that a lot of stuff is compostable or compostable packaging, uh, but we know that in many cases, municipalities don't accept it in the green stream, in the organic stream, because it doesn't compost quick enough. So I think that also creates some tension and some lack of understanding, perhaps, relative to we're moving away from single-use plastics that are bad. This thing says it's compostable on there, but my local municipality doesn't accept it, or I don't know that my local municipality doesn't accept it, and I end up contaminating the organic stream, whether that's digestion or composting. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. You know, I think that ultimately is going to have to be straightened out at, you know, beyond a municipal level, because we need to, we need to get this right going forward. And I think there'll be more pressure on manufacturers as well as governments to have guidelines and rules that, that go easily. Like it should be the same rules when I'm in my office versus when I'm in my home. And it's not right now. Yes, that's true. Well, I could talk to you all day, Joanne. This is this is something that I find fascinating, but I, I'm keeping you about as long as I promised to. So I'm going to ask that we cover one more. And that one was is Save Me, which I think is one that I anticipate is going to be a big deal as well. Tell me what you mean by Save Me. So it's about eating based on environmental impact. And we've seen climate change rise to the top of, you know, issues with elections. Uh, If you look at even Italy, which we don't think of as that progressive a society, they've mandated 33 hours of curriculum annually in schools around climate change. Uh, So I think uh, in 2020, we're at a real tipping point there. Um, I also think coming out of COVID, what we've seen is the whole world line up on the same side of an issue. And I don't think that's ever happened before in the history. We've had wars where we've been on different sides worldwide, but this is the first time I've really seen a society on one side of an issue. And once we see how we can tackle COVID, I think it's going to move on to what is the next issue. So I think, if anything, this is going to get even bigger than, than what we thought. So that's interesting. And, and I, I really tend to agree with you. One of the things that I think clouds the issue a little bit is disagreement on the climate impact of different food products. And do, do you agree that that becomes a challenge or is that, is that something that we're working through and, and, and is it relatively a done deal? 
Well, I mean, I think what we, you know, and I, and I should say, because we work across the whole food ecosystem and we work with beef farmers and egg farmers and fed plant-based proteins, like we're not making value statements here. And you will see that even based on different countries' rules, the impact of a product can vary. Uh, so, you know, I think that what we used in our report was something from uh, from the UN. Yeah. Uh, just trying to get a, a third party so to to talk about the environmental impact of things. But we we know that there is a way of eating where we can lessen the impact. So we're not saying go all the way from eating red meat 24-7 paleo type to only eating grasses. Um, it's just about over time making more informed decisions. And it's not even, you know, I know people use the term flexitarianism, which again is, is an industry term. It's not a consumer term, but it's just lessening your impact, whether that's eating, uh, going meatless one day a week or at lunch, or if it's even, you know, blended products, which I think could have, you know, quite a, quite a bright future going forward. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I've done a, a lot of work on on the reasons people reduce their meat consumption. And and in some cases, if you're reducing your meat consumptions over concern about animal welfare, there is no real halfway point, right? There's not, oh, well, there's one less animal that is suffering. There, there's really not that distinction. But if you're if you're a climatarian, which I think is the word you used, yeah. you can say well, I can lessen my impact. I can drive less than I used to, and I could eat a meal or two less of meat. Or I was really intrigued in the report by by these blended products. And I've heard of restaurants that have a beef mushroom blend in a burger or other opportunities to come up with something that allows me to experience the taste and enjoyment that I've had of a product, but at least psychologically ease some of the guilt associated with a perceived impact on the climate. Yeah, exactly. And it's all about making it easier for the consumer. Uh, and, and I agree with you. Our research has shown that, you know, there's, there's, a, there's very different way, reasons for people uh, doing this. Some it's for personal health, some it's for planet health, uh, and it very much is uh, divided by age as well. So those under 35 years of age, I think, are three times more likely to be hardcore uh, vegetarian vegans and so they're gonna they're not going to be interested in the blended product but the majority of the population are still pro animal protein and to me blended products is kind of a bit of going back to the past uh, so certainly during wartime uh, there was something called victory meat uh, so to ration meat it was encouraging people to add oats uh, in their burgers. And certainly when I was growing up as a boomer, um, my mother uh, used oats in uh, when she was making burgers as well as a way to make the grocery money go further. And meat has become very inexpensive relatively over the past, you know, couple of generations. And so we've been eating more. But it is, you know, something that's not, you know, has hadn't been happening that long ago. Uh, so that idea of blending uh, and I think, you know, you mentioned that the mushrooms in restaurants and uh, Sonic Burger in the U.S. had tested that uh, a couple of years ago. It worked really well. 
But I think uh, some of the blended products we're seeing, it's uh, protein and protein. Uh, so it's not diluting the protein delivery. So you're seeing half pea and half meat protein. Uh, and interestingly, we're even seeing this starting in other categories. So dairy, for instance, you know, some U.S. dairy farmers have come up with a product that's uh, half plant-based, uh, half almond, half dairy blend. And so you're getting kind of the best of both worlds. Baby Bell, which is a huge company out of France, um, Bell, B-E-L, um, they make those cute little round cheeses. Mm-hmm. They're coming out with a half plant-based, half dairy-based cheese. So again, a way of eating, getting the best of both. Yep. That's fascinating. I, I look forward to the next report, but before we wind up, I, I, I wanted to give you the opportunity to tell people where they could find the report if they wanted to see. Yeah, I think you had 10 trends and we in our time only had time to cover three of them. Yeah. And we also have a monthly newsletter. I'd encourage people to sign up uh, and you go to the website Nourish. N-O-U-R-I-S-H dot marketing, no dot com, no dot C-A, nourish dot marketing. And there's a place where you can sign up and also download the trend report. Perfect. Well, Joanne, uh, fascinating conversation. I look forward to uh, more in the future now that I've, now that we've met. I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll want to pick your brain generally and perhaps include you on a future episode of the podcast again. So thank you very much. My pleasure. wrap up another episode of Food Focus, I thought I would just take a quick moment to thank Molly Gallant, who really does the heavy lifting in producing this podcast. She does all the hard work. I get to have the interesting discussions. Thank Zachary Von Massow for the original music. Before we go, I'd like to remind you again about our foodfocusguelph.ca website. Check out our blog, updated at least weekly. Check out previous versions of the podcast. Check out our trends report and get in touch with us. Food Focus at uoguelph.ca. We'd love to have you send us comments, ideas, suggestions, and just to interact and hear what you're thinking about. Finally, if you like the podcast, please take a moment to rate us wherever you get your podcast as this helps other people find us. So thanks again. Hope you enjoyed it and looking forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.